Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host recently spent an evening preparing toddlers for, traveling to, and cleaning up after four minutes at the park. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host spent an evening at the movies. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Revenge of the Dragon Nitro Stout from the Martin City Brewing Company. Uh, so doing a Nitro Stout, we haven't we haven't drank very many Nitros, which is kind of surprising I think, me. I think it's only the second one for the show. Uh, because don't you like Nitro Stouts quite a bit? Uh, I do. I do like Nitro Stouts. And so I am excited to try this one and I look forward to uh, having it in my belly. Yeah, uh, like Martin City, we actually drank another one of theirs not too long ago. So yeah. it seems like, um, I don't know, do we get a punch card so we can get a t-shirt from them eventually? Uh, well, sure. I Let's let's see if we can make yeah, that Yeah, I'm going to ask them. I don't know. Yeah, if, if you're out there, Martin City, and you're listening to this podcast, let us know uh, about t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> this month is going to be a 100% community-focused episode because we had a lot of response from all of you this past month. So first, we're going to start off talking to Dr. Beth Holland, who was the author of some of our prompting literature last month. She's going to help us get better about thinking about the lenses through which we view history and also some of her research on community structure in schools. And then our peer review is going to look at some of the community literature that has been shared with us in response to our review of the highlights of 2018. We're going to read some of your favorite research. So let's get started. So last month we talked to Jen Bennis about uh, the perspectives on the history of school and uh, we read an article by Dr. Beth Holland and she actually gave it a listen and she has joined us to give us some additional context and some additional expertise on some of those topics. Dr. Beth Holland is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Rhode Island and she serves as the Digital Equity Project Director at COSIN. She sits right between research and practice and works as a scholar who speaks to practitioners. Uh, so thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Holland. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it was quite the surprise because I didn't know that you had all read that article. I know that I felt like it was a really productive conversation last month. I know there was a lot of things that I had a chance to reflect on in my own practice and think about how it applies broadly. Um, but we read another one of your articles to get ready for this month. We read The Side Effects of Education, Understanding Perspectives, which is another, another post with Ed Week. And you talked about considering some additional perspectives on some of these issues. And so that's kind of what we're hoping to talk about this month. Um, so can you give us a, maybe a brief overview of what that article was about? You know, basically imagine if you could take a problem and sit it on a pedestal in the middle of a room. What would it look like from a historical perspective? So what does the literature tell us about history so that you build a definition of history and then use that definition to examine your problem? And then what does it look like from sociology? And then what does it look like from economics? And then what does it look like from anthropology? And so what I ended up writing about in that first article was a result of some conversations that I'd had with a few people where a lot of times some of the more current writings about education are really from an economics perspective. And, in, and based on the literature, an economics perspective would talk about something like a model of scarcity. So often you hear things like there's a scarcity of skills or a scarcity of creativity, right? It's a scarcity model. You might look at supply and demand. Oh, these are the demands of skills and these are the available jobs, right? There's been this real linkage of education and economics since really 
the beginnings of like the 1800s. And so it's that, how do you build that lens? And then looking as well as things like sociology, how do sociologists view problems and view situations versus say anthropologists? And the example I had given in that article is I know there's been a lot of talk about Jean Twenge's work with iGen. And, and I don't know Dr. Twenge, but I know that she's a sociologist. And so understanding that a sociologist would look at the world as you know, large quantitative data sets with a little bit of, you know, qualitative, um, you know, interviews or focus groups to explain them, but is looking really, really broadly. And in that article, I compared it to some of the work from, say, Dana Boyd, who's an anthropologist. And as an anthropologist, you really try to understand what are cultures and beliefs and personalities of different groups of people. And so, you know, like Dana Boyd's book, It's Complicated, is on a same topic of looking at the effects of technology on teens, but she approached it from spending a lot of time in different contexts. And it's really by understanding how do you take these lenses as a way of viewing and examining and studying problems and situations so that you get a much broader perspective than, you know, again, just almost getting tunnel vision, but also as a reader, if I am reading something, how am I very conscious of well, this is coming from an economics perspective, or this is coming from a sociological perspective. And that in no way discredits the work. It's just that you have to be aware of the perspective from which the work is being presented. Uh, something that resonates with me in li listening to that description now and in some of the email exchange that we had leading up to this, uh, to this episode was um, emphasizing additional perspectives. Because I felt like that was a thread that we you know, started with last month with Jin. Um, there, I know it got mentioned later in our discussion. We, the Coleman Report came up because that was something that got referenced in your article. And so talking about the perspective of the authors of that report and the social context of that time. And uh, we only had a chance to get into it very briefly. Um, um, but I think that's an important um, example of where these different perspectives could be brought to bear. Sure. And the Coleman report was actually what we had used in our training when we were first understanding what this looks like. So the Coleman report, um, it had a really long title. It was like the education opportunities, something rather long and thoughtful. Um, but it became short, shortened to the idea of the Coleman report because it was Coleman who was the lead author. Now, this came out in 1966. And it was part of two sort of merging influencing events. First was, remember, it was 1965 was the Elementary, Secondary, and Education Act. So that was the first move to start to federalize public education. It was also in response to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So you've got, at this point, President Johnson really framing education as a civil right. So the Coleman Report was the first national sociological study with a really large quantitative data set, meaning they surveyed lots and lots of people to get a relatively representative national sample. And then they looked at achievement measured by achievement tests of the day. At I think it was like third grade, eighth grade, 12th or 11th grade, but it was you know, multiple grade levels. And they looked at it across race, socioeconomics, religion, to try to see what were the differences between these different groups. And they found that there were significant discrepancies between different, not just that it was different racial groups. The biggest difference was they found essentially a gap in the performance on the achievement test by socioeconomics. 
now think about the fact that it was in 1966 and stereotypically most people from a low income area were people of color. And so what you had was the beginning of what appeared to be this racial gap, though most it's, it's one of those things where you have a correlation between race and socioeconomics. What the report ended up finding is there were differences in teacher preparation, teacher qualification, teacher skills, resources available, all of that really based on socioeconomics, though correlating to race. And that's the beginning of this documentation of the idea of the achievement gap. So again, from that sociological perspective, it's showing us with a large national data set, you know, sociology really looks at studying like the influence of big picture systems, right? So what's an influence coming on to culture and community? This was an influence of mostly socioeconomics, but also a, like as an out product or as a, a side product, it was a, a factor of race. Um, but it's, it's really tricky to tie those two things together, just understanding where the world was in 1966. Um, that report, though, has held fairly consistent over time, that there are those differences between, um, there are differences between race, there are differences between socioeconomics, the trick being you have to keep the race and the socioeconomics tied together. So when there are differences, oftentimes it's because of the segregation of communities that then might put different communities in different socioeconomic strata. That it's one of those things where looking at that report, it still continues, you know, to hold true when you look at, you know, do you have an underserved community? What's the performance of that underserved community? How does it compare to an, you know, to a more affluent community? And I think that's really the comparison that continues to go forward. Um, I was just talking to someone recently, there was a news article that came out right around the end of the year, so like in December, um, up here in the Northeast, and it was called the Boston Valedictorian Project. And they went and went back five years, and they found all the valedictorians from all the Boston public schools, kind of like a where are they now? And what they actually found, I mean, the, the I can't remember the statistics precisely, but they were sad. And it was something like, you know, 20 or 30% actually graduated in four years from college. Um, it, it was devastating. And then they were finding, you know, what happened to these kids? And, you know, some of them dropped out. Some of them, you know, managed to get through in five or six years. The kids were commenting they didn't feel prepared. They didn't feel as though, you know, they had the academics. But then they went not just from Boston public schools, but out into the more affluent suburbs. And then you had this complete shift. So like the more affluent the community, those kids, you know, they were through college in four years. They were doing better. They had more connections. And it was because of the social capital and the social support of being in a more affluent community. Some of the statistics from that report, though, that really had shocked me, and I know that you guys have mentioned it, and I looked, I actually went back and reread the report to make sure I couldn't put my foot in my mouth. They said that only eight to nine percent of the factors could actually be attributed to race. And then it was a very small percentage of factors that could be attributed to what happened inside the schools. And the reason why they're making those statements is think about all of the external services that support the development of a child. You know, that's where they started documenting things like summer slide. You know, you've got if you have a student in an affluent community where in the summer they, there's books at home, there's people who read with them, they go to summer camp, they do enrichment programs versus you might have a kid who spends the summer who doesn't have those opportunities and who might also then have food scarcity challenges. 
you know, if they're not in school, they're not fed every day. And so summer becomes this real source of stress. Well, of course you're going to see a summer slide, right? But that has nothing to do with the factors that happened inside of school. Those are the factors from outside of school. And so, you know, the last piece coming back to all of this is remembering in 1966 that this was part of the civil rights era. And it was also part of Johnson's war on poverty. And so he was really, President Johnson was really seeing this, seeing education as an opportunity to reduce the amount of poverty in the country. And it, the Coleman report is one of those reports that it illuminated, I think, a lot of things that people already knew and maybe didn't want to admit, but there wasn't an easy solution, right? Like it's much easier to be able to go, oh, well, we just need to add more, you know, literacy and math to, to these schools and we'll just boost them up. And the Coleman report's like, well, hold on a second. You know, it's sociology. There's forces and factors at play. There's economics and community and culture. And that's what's influencing this thing. Oh, man. So there's so much there. You know, we, we can talk about these large sociological systems and these empirical measurements of all of these demographics and all of these things coming together. But I'm, I'm a classroom teacher. I teach in a high school, right? I want to explore what influence and agency that I have in addressing this issue that's challenging anytime there's an individual that is attempting to accept a, a systemic sociological problem. One of the things from my perspective that I hear when, when I hear these kinds of statistics or, or this, this kind of data is, okay, what, is, what do I know about education psychology that applies to this? And there's a lot of consistencies. We know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If your core fundamental physical safety and psychological safety are not met, you're not going to be able to do higher level cognitive tasks. We know that if you do not have uh, consistency and you, you do not have reliability, then you're not going to trust the leaders or authority figures in whatever system you're participating in. And so I have a wide variety of socioeconomic uh, students in the school that I, that I teach in. We have homeless students and we have some of the wealthiest students, uh, a wide variety. And so when I have a student in my classroom who comes from a background who has not had consistent relationships with authority figures and has not had their needs met physically consistently and has not had their needs met consistently psychologically and has not had uh does not have safe associations with being maybe in school or in a classroom or out in the world what do i do <laughs> so i think you just raised my point on lenses really well so just remember right so sociolo sociology is a lens and it's a lens through which to examine a situation you know, again, it relies on large data sets and it looks at really big picture, like social structural systems, like socioeconomics, race, gender. Those are probably things that as a classroom teacher, you can't touch. Um, you know, I remember one of the other things you learn as a student, like as a doctoral student is what are the things that you can, where can you actually move the needle? Like where can you actually do something that would have an impact? So sociology is only one lens, right? you have to start thinking again, like if I'm gonna take this problem and put it in the middle of the room, how many ways can I walk around it? And so you started talking about child psychology or developmental psychology, those are both lenses. Learning science is a lens, neuroscience is a lens. You have to keep walking around the room, looking at all through those different lenses until you think you have a really deep understanding of the problem. And I think the challenge is to make sure as a classroom teacher that when you're looking at a situation with a child, that you're aware of those different lenses. 
So you have a child who might have some have food insecurities, who may not have some trust in authority and in people. And so then you start considering it, okay, from a neuroscience perspective, this child might be feeling stress. If they're feeling stress, they're, you know, their brains are producing cortisol. What can I do to mitigate stress in this classroom? And then you might think about from a multicultural perspective, I need to make sure that I'm valuing the different voices and the different ways in which my students communicate and the cultures from which they come. And how am I conscious about the types of materials I present and the opportunities I give them as ways of expressing their learning. And so I think by having these lenses, it's not to say ignore sociology, it's to say I'm gonna be aware of it, but that might not be the place where I go right now because you can't fix certain things we just can't fix. So that's where, again, if understanding there's all of these different lenses through which we can examine things and then decide what's the ones that are actionable within your context. And so getting to uh, an accurate representation of what's going on can help us better address some of the problems in that system. But then when I, when, when I started hearing from you, I think it really pushed me to think about, okay, even if I have a good perspective, it's still only one. It's still only one perspective. And so to make sure that I'm checking for other opportunities or other ways to think about a problem, so I'm making sure that I'm getting good leverage on, on different ways to address that problem. Uh, and so if, and if I'm not, then you, you can end up getting tunnel vision and you can end up getting uh, overly focused on some of the extraneous details that aren't all that useful. And so um, hearing from you, if I'm synthesizing correctly, is that making sure that I'm considering multiple lenses on a single problem makes me sure that makes me uh, more confident that I'm effectively getting good leverage on solving whatever problem I'm trying to tackle as appropriate to a single classroom teacher. Yeah, and I think it's really important too for defining the problem. All of, when we started this, when I started my doctoral studies, all of this came in with a predefined problem of practice. We all thought we knew what we were doing, right? You get accepted, you go, I know what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to look at. And it's great because by the time you get through your first six months, you've probably thrown it out and had to admit that you're wrong. And so I remember I finally got to December and I was talking to my dissertation advisor. And at the time, my problem, problem of practice, I'm doing like the air quote thing for those of you that are just listening, is I thought the issue with teachers not being able to support students with, you know, 21st century skills, knowledge economy skills, whatever you want to call them, like those ideas, I thought the problem was access and opportunity to professional development. Because at the time I was working for a professional development company. So I have my solution, right? It's kind of like that saying, like, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I... You know, like I have my solution and I had framed it as a problem. And finally, my advisor says to me, if you gave every single teacher in the entire country the greatest professional development on the planet and they all did all the work and everything about it and it was perfect, would you solve the problem? And without even missing a beat, I said, no. I just went, no, it wouldn't solve the problem at all. He says, okay, then what's the real problem? And that's when you go, ah, I got to start over because I don't really know. And I'm like, Gosh, darn it. But then, and to come back to your, your awesome point about like, what can I actually control, right? So, I mean, I went huge to like 30,000 feet and I'm like, oh my God, like system failure. We've got all these big things, right? But at some point you got to finish this degree and you got to measure something. So again, the way um, Henry, my advisor explained it, he's like, you work down the funnel and you keep working down the funnel until something small, like kind of like spits out that you go, oh yeah, I can measure that. And you just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So like I had started with basically like 
the system of school doesn't support instructional innovation. Like, uh, what was I going to yeah. do about that? Is That's like, a good question. Right? Yeah. Like, right. yeah. So, so not going to, right? So then I had to start getting like smaller and smaller and smaller down to my final little bitty piece was how could I improve the quantity and quality of communication between district administrators and building principals? But we have had that like conversation. A, like yeah. put it on yeah. the head of a pin, right? My logic was I'm going to take these people and I'm going to give them a just-in-time like online training platform and I'm going to ask them to collaborate digitally. And so the other super short answer of this one is if people don't like each other and don't trust each other, they don't talk. Okay, that's like 20 pages summed up pretty short. Um, the theory that if you could get people to talk together more, it would lead towards improvement, that I still think holds true. Well, and that's sort of a perfect uh, segue. And I know, sorry, but that's a perfect segue. Empower each other. To uh, some of the other material that you sent, because um, that sort of community building, relationship building, uh, because you have expertise in that area, that was the other paper that we ended up talking about last month. So we read one last uh, month about um, social capital, and we also read one this month in preparation uh, about social capital, and uh, they kind of slightly covered different different topics, but both of them were essentially about how do individuals choose to network and what are the consequences of how people network for their own practice and the the perceptions of the practice they have on the schools that they're in and i just i just love that whole topic i love last month's article and and, and this one too yeah mulinar i like mulinar's work all right i'm gonna put my scholar hat on for a minute okay and give a little background okay so there's a group of scholars there out on the West Coast, and it's Daly, Finnegan, Mulinar, Umakubo, and Che, not necessarily in that order. And I think I've read everything that some combination of those groups of authors have written at this point. Um, they're out, they've done a ton of studies out in Southern California. They did a lot of work when Common Core was first coming out. And what they did is they started by using an empirical strategy called social network analysis. And what that does is it looks at the networks, the advice seeking networks of who actually talks to who, and it's a quantitative measure. You don't create a survey instrument. You use what's known as a validated survey instrument, one that a group of researchers has determined is effective at measuring what they claim it's going to measure. And so they use those instruments to figure out who talks to who, and then they use what's known as a relational perspective. So it wasn't just who talks to who, but how often and how would you rate the quality of those interactions? And so those really cool diagrams that you guys liked, those are all what are known as sociograms, and they're outputs of the statistical analysis of the interactions. Please don't ask me how the math works. I have no idea. I used, there, there's a number of different software platforms that you can use and you run these different algorithms that makes the data look the way it looks. And you can make the data look like anything. 
Um, I actually had to meet with some data scientists in the library when I ran social network analysis as part of my study because I was using the wrong models. And I'm like, this is so cool. And they're like, yeah, that's not the one you want. So, um, so then, you, you know, again, you have to decide what are the statistical measures that you're looking for. So you might look at the density of connections, like so how tightly clustered is the network? The denser the connections, the more people are interacting. You might look at what's called the centrality of a network. Who are the key players that are positioned most centrally in the network, right? Typically, the people that are central to the networks are the ones that have the most position. Position could be hierarchy or authority or just they value those people as thought leaders. This is where you really need a qualitative piece to figure out why the people are central in the network. Um, you can look at one that I found really fascinating was some from this Blondell, the Blondell algorithm. I have no idea how it worked. It was magic and it came up in colors. Um, but it would look at what was known as these statistical communities. So statistically speaking, how are people clustered together? Who talks to who, right? And so like in the, one, of the, one of the studies I sent you from Mulinar was the one where they were looking at the, the dynamics in the networks within sort of more innovative organizations and what did those look like? Um, and one of the things I also liked about that was like the, the longer people have been working together, so you've built that relational trust, you've built that experience, the more innovative they thought they were whether they were or they weren't, because they started to like feed off of each other, which I thought was really fascinating. And I really desperately wish I had found that article, like not the week before I submitted my dissertation, because I think I would have changed some things. Um, but it was still like, it was clutch to find it at the time. So that's where the network's now the last piece. And this is why it's important to understand that Mulinar is part of like this cohort of researchers. And this ties into some work that Meredith Honig led at the District Leadership Lab at the University of Washington, is they looked at this idea that there's certain kinds of people in these networks. You've got what's called the boundary spanners, right? The people that go between different groups. A lot of times, um, there was also a researcher named Swinnerton who did an anthropological study, again, thinking about our lenses to make sure this doesn't go like completely out in outer space. So Swinnerton did an anthropological study of instructional coaches in a district. Instructional coaches are really positioned as boundary spanners, right? They work between teachers, they work between central office, they're spanning back and forth between those groups. There's also the role of what they call the broker. Um, and Honig, and then also it was Honig and Rainey did some fascinating studies where they looked at, typically the, the principal might be a really good broker. They broker policy messages and, and communication from the central office through to the teachers, but they also have positional power where if I come to you, say, as the principal and go, I want you to redo the whole way you teach math. I'm making this up right now. And you go, great, but I don't have time. As the broker, I can go, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take this off your plate. I'm going to give you this time. Like, this is what's really important. I'm going to broker some way of doing it. Um, you know, I want you to be an advisor. I could be an advisor, but I'm so busy doing lunch duty. Fine. I'm going to take lunch duty off your plate. This is where our policy and our priority is, right? The broker has that ability to do it. The one you have to be careful of is then there's also like that blocker, the one where the message comes down and the person's like, I'm not spreading that. I'm, you know, or my personal favorite. This is what we're, the district says we're supposed to do, but you don't have to if you don't want to. 
this sounds like uh, it makes me think of um, when I get uh, like an instruction or when I'm hearing a request to say, hey, do this thing, but also they're making it very clear that they're never gonna follow up on it. They're never gonna check how, like they're never gonna give you feedback on it. And so it's very easy to be like, well, why would I do that thing if you don't actually care whether I get it done? So when I launched my um, dissertation project, I was in three different districts in the Northeast United States. Let's, we're gonna keep it there. Um, one of, one of my sites I went in, I did this, you know, our kickoff meeting, it was a total cluster, like really couldn't have gone worse logistically. I wasn't given the right information, like all kinds of mess. And at the very end of it, the superintendent stands up and says, well, we're really glad that Beth's here and, but we have other priorities. So if you get to it, fine. And if you don't, fine. And I knew right there, I'm like, oh, this is going to fail. Like, yeah, yeah. like just leave like what what do you do with that yeah Ugh. uh so getting back to um to lawrence's comment about well i'm one classroom teacher uh, and so i remember some of the flavor of our discussion of that paper last month was um so i may not have the ability to to measure the entire social structure of my building but i have some intuition about you know generally what that layout might look like so how do i leverage when I think that I can identify a characteristic of that social space, uh, is there some way that I can be like, well, if I know that I've got an effective broker here, then I can do this and it's more, it's more effective. Or what are some, maybe some tips for classroom teachers as they try to identify, you know, some of the nebulous social structure that they may be uh, a part of. So I think the first one uh, was actually a great piece of advice I got from a middle school principal that I, when I was working, um, I was the director of technology at a small little K eight and or preschool through eight independent school. And, you know, as the technology person, like I represent change. I was in a fairly traditional environment and I came in, you know, like blazing and raring to go. And after my first couple of months, the middle school principal pulls me aside and he looks at me and he goes, does anyone actually like you? And he meant that in the kindest possible way. And the point being, you have to start with the people that actually like you and trust you. You know, I was trying to like bang down every single door and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I'm like, well, the fourth grade teacher likes me and the sixth grade social studies teacher seems to like me. And he's like, so go play with them and leave everybody else alone. He's like, start there. Um, the second thing, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and I was listening to Pam Moran and Ira Sokol from um, Albemarle, Virginia. And Pam made a really great point. She said when, as the superintendent, when someone would come to her and said, I have this great idea or this you know, great thing I want to do, she would say, absolutely, who's your team? Because one person just like causes problems, right? One person's a troublemaker. I was a troublemaker. But when you get a team, right, now you have a coalition. And so it's really about thinking, how do you build, I think as a teacher, how do you build that coalition? Who's going to get in this fight with you? Like, who's going to be your wingman? I think, had I actually been like mature before, which I, I think I just found a shred of maturity in like the last eight months. I'm very proud of myself. I'm only 42. I think I just found it. Um, but had I had some before, I would have recognized that, you know, you need a team. Um, there's another great researcher out of Northwestern by the name of James Spillane. And he's done a lot of work where he finds that it's really fun to say. He talks about this idea of propinquity. <laughs> and pro I know it's a great word. And the article is called The Elephant in the Schoolhouse. 
And the elephant in the schoolhouse is being this notion of like propinquity where, where you're physically placed, you know, like you physically interact more with the people that are physically closest to you. So like the two classrooms that are next to each other or like the person you have to walk past all the time, you know, when we're all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, how do you build, how do you take advantage of that? Because imagine what happens when like that whole side of the hallway is doing it, right? You create that social pressure. And I think that comes back to your point on social capital where you need that social capital, the ability to spread those ideas through a network. And that's how I'm going to define it right now. I can, I can give you a citation if you want. Um, but it's really like the strength to be able to spread resources through a network. Um, I see you writing it down. It was from uh, Zhao Frank and Borman in 2004. I'll see an article if you want. Um, where you need that social capital if you're going to spread different ideas through a network. We really appreciate you taking the time to give us feedback on our discussions, give us so many new references to go read. I've got a lot of homework now. If the listeners have really enjoyed uh, listening to your comments and they want to read more of what you've written or consume more of the media that you create, uh, where can they best find other material by you? Um, so you can go to my website, which is brholland.com. Um, I am starting a new blog series with COSIN that will start this week, actually. So it's on the COSIN.org blog. Um, I've got some writing there. I've also started writing with Getting Smart a little bit more. So I know I've got some articles coming out there. And I write from time to time for Edutopia. So there's things over there. Unfortunately, Ed Week shut us down, which is very sad. So I'm not there anymore. I know. Um, I'm on Twitter as BR Holland. You're welcome to find me there. I'm BR Holland on LinkedIn. I'm BR Holland everywhere. Yes, I'm a very responsive person. If you don't hear from me for some reason, like please hit me again. It means the interwebs ate it. And, uh, and I will get back to you. We're in this together. In our peer review this month, I sent out a, a social media request over Twitter asking all of you what research was your favorite during 2018 in response to our discussion with Yuki and his roundup of 2018 research highlights. And we heard back from Meg Richard, who responded with how important she finds the work being done by 100K in 10. Uh, so who are they? Uh, they're a, a coalition of teachers and citizens and educators and employers and scientists that uh, believe that having good science teachers is an important social priority. And they, uh, we have turnover in education in general, and we have shortage of science teachers in certain places. And they want to, they want to stop that. They want to solve that. And so. Uh, they attempt to address the factors that are contributing to the shortage of science teachers. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Chris Harold chimed in and shared a report that she actually personally worked on as a, as a, a piece of this larger movement. And uh, so she has shared and we have read increasing visibility of women in STEM. Yeah. Uh, first, they established the uh, discrepancy, the problem, the, the demographics don't match the statistics. More females get STEM degrees, but only 25% of STEM jobs are held by females. And so what's at issue for us is trying to address the statistical imbalance, uh, what sometimes gets described as the leaky pipeline. That's not a very good way to talk about it. We should find other ways to describe that. Uh, but the upshot is, how do we um, address this imbalance? And what can I do as a single classroom teacher to address it? And this report, I felt like, did a pretty good job of 
clearly identifying specific behaviors I can use that might help. Agreed. Uh, this is a super accessible read. There is a problem. We should solve it. Here's something teachers can do. It was, it, it was a pleasure and uh, uh, very direct. The first recommendation that they make is related to some of the research on self-efficacy that we've discussed on the show in the last couple months in acknowledging and leveraging that one of the ways you can help people believe they can do something is by letting them interact with and see others successfully doing that thing with whom they identify. Their top recommendation, or at least the first one, introduce your students to a woman in STEM. And we like, we like pithy narratives. And so there's a perfect quote from a fifth grader uh, from Washington State. I think of engineers as boys, but since I met a girl engineer, it opens up my life so I can be one. <laughs> like, I, Period, I, yes, good job. <laughs> so introduce them to women in STEM. There you go. Yeah, and there's a note that I made in looking at this because it's something that I think about based on our discussion in the third segment last month about how we refer to historical figures. And I find that um, sometimes in this situation, examples get drawn from history more often than they get drawn from current practice practicing professionals. And so I think something that we need to be cognizant of as classroom teachers is it may be uh, it may be easy to fall into a rut of frequently referencing historical figures that are good representative um, role models for the various students we may serve in our classrooms, but then still falling back on the, um, the less diverse pool of current practicing individuals when we wanna make contemporary references. And so being cognizant that introducing your students to a woman in STEM, that's about right now. That's about scientists today. There is a real person, flesh and blood, have a conversation with her right now. Uh, and that's, that's distinct in some important ways from making historical references to the famous women from STEM. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that because I, I, I'm going to come back to what you're talking about. Uh, but I want to hit the second topic use media that depicts women in STEM, because that refers to what you're talking about, the historical references. Uh, and so that's number two. Recently, I have been working with this. Before I read this, I, I was kind of in this place based on some things that we have discussed in the past. Uh, one of my students in my general ninth grade biology class asked me who my top three favorite scientists are. And I was like, oh man, I'm gonna have to think about that a lot. And so well, who's the first one off the top of your head? And I, I thought of Richard Feynman, who I have some great respect for, for a lot of reasons. And I, I, I shared some stories about him. And I said, but I'm gonna get back to you about the other two. And I was like, oh, I, I, need, I, need, to, I need to be representative about this. So this really isn't about my favorite. This is me having an opportunity to give students. And anyway, so give us three exemplars. Yes. Is what they're actually asking. For. Yes, exactly. And so um, my next one was Jane Goodall. And I thought about that and prepared it. And I have a third thought that I haven't used yet. And I've been thinking about it. But this is used media that depicts women in sin. Make sure that you have exemplars that are diverse. Uh, and I, I, I've got two out of three. And I had a white guy in the first one and a white lady in the second one, and I got to do something else for the third. I have to be conscious of this choice. So I, I was good. I feel good about the used media that depicts women in STEM, but again, connects back to what you just said about science now and exemplars. Now their third recommendation is connect STEM to the real world and the local community. And when I read this, 
I just had to beat myself up. My sister is a chemical engineer that works for the EPA here in uh, Lenexa. So she can connect STEM to the real world and the local community and is a woman working in a STEM field that I have ready, easy access to who will come down and talk about science, chemistry, engineering, environmental science, social comp texts readily and eagerly at my fingertips and i have never leveraged that asset that is a failure on my part to leverage my resources that i just i read this today i was like oh my gosh <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here trying to you know prepare a biography of jane goodall which is fine and my sister is a living exemplar well, now that you've acknowledged it, and I think you're going to take actions in response, I it am. is not a failure. I am going to take actions in response. I'm going to see if I can get her in this year, especially for that class of ninth graders that ask. That's the one that I, I got to get her in to talk to them. And if I can get her to other classes, that's great. But man, that conversation's got to happen. She'd mm -hmm. love to do it. There was something in here that I caught that was something to avoid which wasn't really what most of their their paper was targeted to. It was targeted about here, here are things you should do. But one thing that I caught that was something to avoid is that um, when there are primarily male depictions in STEM fields, uh, they can sometimes perpetuate stereotypes of brilliance or innate ability that decreases a girl's perceptions of their abilities in that field. If we have, if we hold up these, these, Paragons. Uh, paragons that we've we have made icons of science like Albert Einstein was great and Newton was great and Galileo was amazing. It's easy for someone to say, well, that is not me, so I am not science. And we we gotta stop that. We gotta stop that. Scientists are people, they're not icons. Yeah. And that's and that's not just the ignoring hidden effort problem. Ignoring hidden effort is a part of it, but that's, yes. not, that's not all that it is. Right. Uh, acknowledging their humanity, their shortcomings, their failings, their struggles, the context within which they worked, um, humanizes their contributions to their fields, which thus then makes the fields accessible to humans. Right. This is better with all of you. How was the beer? Um, it was it was uh it was a it was a good representation of a of a nitro stout. Very smooth, sweet-ish, malty, dark. Um, but uh, I, there's a little bit of a um I find to be a um disconnect between the name of the beer, Revenge of the Dragon, and the actual qualities of the beer. Because I find this dragon, you know, Revenge of the Dragon sounds like it's oh a my wrathful, yeah. rageful. Yeah, I was I was expecting to find some kind of angry beer, and though I enjoy this beer, it's closer to a smooth, slightly less sweet kind of a Guinness feeling, yeah. um, and it definitely doesn't have any of the angrier flavors this that is I enjoy. Embrace of the panda. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's good. I recommend this beer, uh, but. Uh, I think the game, the name doesn't characterize its um, 
it's uh it's experience thank you for all your feedback this past month we really love engaging with all of you as listeners and giving you literature and discussion that you find useful and that you can implement in your classroom so make sure to reach out to us on social media send us an email or comment on our website twopintplc.com and we will commit to you that we want to represent your comments in future episodes so as you pursue growth discuss research and struggle well